0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consult Rx podcast. And we got another episode coming at you that is ACPE accredited for continuing education purposes. Yeah. Thanks to our buddies over at FreeCE.com. Um, we are going to have this hour-long episode for you. Then you're going to hopefully learn something from it. Go take our 10-question multiple-choice exam, if you will, and uh, pass with flying colors. To access that exam, use the password HEART, H-E-A-R-T, all capital letters, and you will get access to the exam, pass that, and then you'll get your credit. Um, so this is a service, obviously, through com, and it's for the um, anyone who has Unlimited membership access. So if you haven't upgraded your membership and you're just kind of going, you know, monograph by monograph or live session by live session, definitely upgrade to the uh, the unlimited membership and you'll get access to all of our podcast episodes that are accredited and uh, yeah, lots of other really good stuff. Um, and then there's also if you look in the show notes below, there'll be a discount code as well that you can use to get 15 percent off the the purchase. So definitely check that out. And if you're already a member, like I said, heart is the password, and that'll let you into the Super fun exam.
1: Nice. Exam sounds kind of scary. Um, Yeah. Well, well, like a quiz. That's what
0: we do here. We try to cause intimidation. (laughs) We're very intimidating. (laughs) Something like that. So Cole, what are we talking
1: about today? Yeah, so um, turns out that there was a uh, relatively recent, right? April, April, okay, twenty twenty two, a couple months ago from when we we're recording this. Uh, update to the heart failure guidelines, mainly related to HEF-REF, um, reflecting a fair amount of things that we've been kind of referencing and talking about uh, over the last uh, what year and a half? Yeah, probably year and a, a half like that. Um, so we're gonna um, we're gonna kind of take you through heart failure and hit the um, updates in the guidelines. I think this is going to be a great overview, um, uh, kind of back to a a few of the basics as well uh, related to um, cardiac output, um, peripheral vascular resistance, stuff like that, some of those uh, formulas. And uh, we're definitely going to hit the the updates and the guidelines hard so you guys can be as up-to-date as possible.
0: Yes. And this is, I think we may have mentioned like the new classifications of heart failure in an episode, but this is where they are now official. And yes. So this is going to be, this is good. And they actually have a breakdown of, of treatment algorithms based on exactly
1: those classifications. And we'll say that these are the updated uh, American guidelines. Um, they differ uh, in a fair, in a few ways, actually, from the European guidelines. I was reading an article about it, interestingly, but um, the European guidelines aren't as uh, gung ho for some of the new therapies. Um, as yeah. Americans are, interestingly. Yeah. But we will be talking about the U.S. guidelines.
0: So we'll start off with some basic, you know, just background information. Hopefully this is all kind of review. But um, when we think about blood pressure as a whole, you know, it's made up of, if you want to kind of simplify down to, um, you know, a math equation, if you will, blood pressure is equal to cardiac output. Times, um systemic vascular resistance, or you'll also see that called um, total peripheral resistance, uh, and then cardiac output itself is a product of stroke volume multiplied by heart rate. And so you take that cardiac output multiplied by the systemic vascular resistance that gives you your blood pressure. Um, now, stroke volume itself—it's part of that cardiac output—is is basically the amount of blood that is pumped out of the heart uh, with each beat, or at the end of the diastole, and um, or at the beginning, rather, the heartbeat—not not the end. Um, and that's important because the the stroke volume is basically what is. One is one of the major components for evaluating the ejection fraction, which is going to be important for kind of classifying heart failure. Um, but if some other things that we we have to take into account as far as our treatment kind of targets, um, when we talk about like preload, um, which is the, the stretching of the myocardial muscle fibers just prior to contraction um, or the ventricular wall tension at the end of diastole is another way of looking at it. Um, afterload is the, the amount of aortic pressure that the heart ejects x blood against in order to empty the left ventricle and then contractility is the other term that's important and that's going to be the um, basically something that accounts for the changes in the strength of myocardium um, contraction uh, independent of the preload and the afterload so it's mediated by basically changes of the intracellular calcium concentration and um, inside the cardiomyocytes so Stroke volume itself, again, the amount of blood that's pumped out of the heart with each beat, um, uh, is is the. Um, one piece of ejection fraction, so the numerator, um, and that is going to be divided by the end diastolic volume, um, which then multiplied by the 100 to get turned into a percentage, and um, that will give you your ejection fraction, which is what we kind of use to evaluate um, where they're going to be classified in which stage, not stage, but where, which classify, classification of heart failure the patient has. Right.
1: Cause it's all in some way heart failure, right? Just yeah. Classification. Um, yeah. In short ejection fraction measures how effectively your, your heart is, is pumping blood. Um, so there are some, um, major players in the development of heart failure as far as the pathophysiology goes. Um, many you'll be familiar with because they are sites of action of some of the drugs we'll talk about. Uh, so angiotensin two is one, uh, it's initially a compensatory mechanism. But ultimately, um, it's, it's uh, a negative. Uh, it increases uh, it, it, with the increase in preload uh, and afterload are definitely a negative for men. Uh, aldosterone leads to sodium and fluid retention, um, which is characteristic frequently of heart failure. Um, vasopressin as well leads to fluid retention as well as vasoconstriction. Um, we also have um, natriuretic peptides, A and B types. Uh, these are actually good. Um, they are, they're used to measure um, the severity or to assess the severity. Uh, frequently you'll see um, B and P levels to assess the severity of a patient's heart failure. Um, uh, but they're elevated uh, in, in this instance and they may actually have protective effects uh, by decreasing preload.
0: So kind of looking at, like, the old-school ways of classifying heart failure, you know, we have our two big groups of ejection fraction or reduced ejection fraction heart failure and then preserved ejection fraction. Um, And then even before that, uh, reduced ejection fraction was considered – um, systolic heart failure, and then preserved was diastolic heart failure, and uh, basically the different, the big difference is if you looking at the the ventricle, the left ventricle, um, with reduced ejection fraction, um, you'll get this um, enlarged left ventricle that has a reduced ability to pump, and um, oftentimes you'll see that a very th- um, thinned and weakened um, wall of that ventricle, uh, and it's basically allows more more volume in as for the end diastolic volume the problem is the the ability to actually pump that blood out or the, or you know give that stroke volume um, is reduced because of the lack of you know the pump or the droopy ventricle if you will and so the the numerator of the ejection fraction equation is going down whereas the denominator is actually increasing and so that ejection fraction gets lower and lower um, now with preserved ejection fraction that is where you're you're getting um, either a normal or a small left ventricle size um, because the the walls of the ventricle are actually thickening. Um, And so it becomes like this very stiff muscle, but it has normal... Pumping capabilities, it's just much less room for that, you know, blood to kind of fill, and so the, the usually you'll see preserved ejection fraction like in older patients and things like that. Um, whereas reduced is usually after some sort of a cardiovascular event like an MI or something like that um, that causes like actual cell death, and then that's what causes that droopy ventricle to happen in the first place. The the, the preserved is where it's more so you know, in causing hypertrophy over time and. Um, um, just kind of takes up space in that ventricle with that thickened cell wall. So when the, the stroke volume came, will go down because there's not as much uh, initial volume from the end diastolic, but that number is also going down. So they, when you do the math, the ejection fraction itself is preserved, if you will. But um, we yeah, not, we have a few other classifications now.
1: Yeah. And I was going to say that um, uh, we'll hit on the differences here, but um we really had a great conversation about the subtleties of that with a guest mm-hmm. a few months ago. It wasn't yeah. a, a cardiologist, yeah, cardiologist on, and he um, he framed it in a really uh, a great way. So I'd encourage you if you want more info on that yeah. to to go back and look at that
0: episode. I'm going to have him back on. He was great.
1: Yeah, he's fantastic. Should have yeah. had him on today. <laughs> yeah, missed what, opportunity. What are doing? Um,
0: but let's, let's, do you want to talk about the, uh,
1: yeah. the New York Heart Association? So I think we're all probably pretty familiar with the uh, older classifications from the New York Heart Association. I won't go into um, each of them uh, too in depth, but there's um, basically stratified into four different groups. Um, New York Heart Association, class one, two, three, and four. Um, and uh, it's uh, progressively uh, increasing the severity of a patient's heart failure. So in one, they might have no limitation in physical activity, um, and it doesn't cause undue fatigue, uh, palpitations, or dyspnea. Uh, Class two, they might have slight limitations, um, but no issues at rest. Um, Three, they might have marked limitation in physical activity, but comfortable at rest. Uh, And then four, um, they would be unable to carry any physical activity without discomfort, and they're going to have symptoms at rest. Um, And they also kind of have the two um, stratifications of um, HEF-PEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction being greater than 50%, um, the ejection fraction being greater than 50%, and then the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction being less than 40%, leaving that no man's land of 40 to 50%, which um, we now have officially addressed in the newer guideline right
0: yes because that, that's been a, a point of debate for a while I know
1: it's been a big question I, I, I how we would actually just treat those patients sit there laying in my bed at night thinking <laughs> what are they classified as yes the ejection fraction of 45 what are they we, we have all been there these are the existential questions <laughs> that cole thinks that about. you have in pharmacy school
0: oh man yeah and then for years after <laughs> for years after until, thank God, the American Heart Association came <laughs> in and cleared it up for us so I can finally get some rest. I know. But uh, last year, in April of 2021, uh, there was a, a paper that was put out in the Journal of Cardiac Failure, and it was basically um, basi- putting out this this potential like universal definition and classifications of heart failure that um, proposed these revised stages of heart failure and then four classifications of ejection fraction. And... You know, I, I, we had brought it up, I think a uh, previous episode, but now these, these are what they've actually adopted. Mm-hmm. So to talk about the the stages, um, there's stage A through D and in stage A is basically patients that are at risk for heart failure, um, which means that they're, they're at risk for heart failure, but they're not having any symptoms uh, of heart failure. They're not having any kind of structural heart disease. There's no cardiac biomarkers of like stretch or injury, um, and it's something that, uh, you know, the patient necessarily, um, you know, is not, it, it's kind of just the, the uncontrolled hypertension or things like that, diabetes, um, you know, those types of things that would basically lead someone to this, to, so, you know, the Put them at risk, um, whereas stage B or pre-heart failure is where they don't necessarily have symptoms or, or signs of, of heart failure. Um, however, um, there's evidence of one of the following. So it can either be structural heart disease, which is reduced left or right ventricular systolic function. It could be ventricular hypertrophy wall motion abnormalities, valve heart disease, whatever, um, or evidence of increased filling pressures, uh, which you'd have to you know, get with either invasive hemodynamic measurements or um, non-invasive, like using a, a Doppler echocardiography, um, or if a patient has increased, uh, patients with risk factors and in, in increased levels of BMP um, or some kind of like elevated troponins or something like that um, without obviously presenting with any kind of acute coronary syndrome, or MI, things like that. So if if they have no symptoms or signs of heart failure, but they have evidence of one of those, they consider that pre-heart failure, um, which like is- Like pre-diabetes. It's, it's just like that only with heart failure. <laughs> <laughs> And then stage C is what we actually think of when we talk about heart failure. That's like um, symptomatic heart failure, that's structural heart disease with current or previous symptoms of heart failure. And then D is just more advanced. So it's um, where the patient has you know very very uh, marked heart failure symptoms um, that interfere with daily life and has had hospitalizations despite attempts at optimizing evidence-based treatment and um, you know, potentially is going to be looking at either palliative care or cardiac transplant, something like that.
1: Got to tell you, I think they made the right choice going with the um, alphabetical classifications. I don't know why, but that just hits me better than the numeric. Does it? Yeah, I just like it better than one, two, three, four. Well, there you go. A, B, C, D.
0: You got holes not of approval. Who pulmonary does that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For gold for uh, the COPD guidelines. Yeah,
1: they're alphabetical. They sure are. I can't think of anyone else who's numeric. Hmm. Mm, I'm sure there's somebody. Um, yeah, I guarantee <laughs> there has to be. There has to be. But none not, not like of the big three diabetes stuff. Anyways, I That's digress. Here nor there. I digress. Um, so when you're in that stage C and you have symptomatic heart failure, there's different, um, uh, I guess, places you can be. So they kind of have some definitions for that. Uh, it's kind of on a spectrum. Uh, so if you're newly diagnosed, you're a new onset. They might call it de novo heart failure. This is a, a newly diagnosed patient. They don't have a previous history of heart failure. You can have patients who are on evidence-based treatment and their symptoms, um, seem to resolve. And so they, they might call that resolution of symptoms, um, no more signs of heart failure, but since they were at that stage C, uh, with previous symptoms of heart failure with persistent left, uh, ventricular ventricular dysfunction, you still want to, uh, keep them on treatment. So they, they, they should still be treated, um, Heart failure in remission with resolution of previous structural and or functional heart disease is a possibility, and that would be classified under resolution of symptoms. Very uncommon for that to happen. So for the most part, uh, these patients are going to continue on treatment in almost all cases. There's also persistent heart failure uh, with ongoing symptoms, uh, limited functional capacity. I think this is where the majority of patients lie. It's Their symptoms are persistent. They're on um, uh, treatments, and um, we're hopefully delaying progression. Uh, And and improving outcomes and then there's a worsening heart failure where a patient even though they're on treatment is seeing worsening symptoms signs functional capacities worsening um, And and that's where you need to um, to adjust their uh, therapy to hopefully prevent them from going into stage D
0: and then when it comes to the ejection fraction, so we obviously still have less than or, or 40% or less is going to be considered reduced ejection fraction like it always is. But now that middle ground like Cole was talking about um, where it's basically 41% to 49% um, is going to be what they refer to as heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction um, or HEF-MREF. Um, um, but that is... Uh, half, half, half Mr. F. <laughs> potentially that as well. <laughs> Thank you, Cole. <laughs> and then we have half pef which is the 50 and, and above. Um, and they also have another one, which is called um, heart failure with improved ejection fraction, which is where it was previously less than 40%. However, the on follow-up measurement after different medications and whatnot, that ejection fraction is now above 40%. Now the reason why that's classified as something different is because what has happened in the past is patients will have an improvement in their ejection fraction and then instead of following the same regiment that got them there, they'll be either like de escalated or basically treated mm-hmm. as if they have preserved ejection fraction and then the the end up kind of deteriorating back into reduced ejection fraction. So it was basically, yes, they've improved, but they want them to stay on the same treatment that got them there in the first place. Right.
1: Um, so from there, the, like Mike said, if you're at less than 40 HEF-REF, you can improve to HEF uh, improved or hef imp ref. Um If you're at hef uh, <coughs> hef ref, uh 41 to 49, you can um, uh, decrease and um, progress to HEF-REF. Worsen. Um, it can worsen. It, it could get better and be uh, over 50% and improve. They don't really have a classification for that since you were never actually at HEF-REF. Um, I think most people would probably still call this hef improved F but um, It's not technically classified that way since they weren't ever
0: there's literally a star in the guidelines of like We don't really know how to guide guide patients here. It's just like
1: blank But if you were always preserved uh, Over 50% you can of course worsen to FM ref and then worsen to to have ref uh, uh, as well, so I don't know, just different ways to, to classify it and hopefully uh, would help guide therapy if you can classify appropriately. Yeah. And and we won't go in through all the, the diagnostic
0: algorithm, but it, they do have some really good kind of a flow chart in the, the guidelines, basically doing the, the clinical history, physical examination, EKG, various labs, looking at um, natriuretic peptides, so either a BMP or NT-pro BMP. And then the other thing is going to be the um, trans thoracic echocardiogram um, and then additional testing if necessary. But from there, that'll give you your ejection fraction and you can kind of um, kind of get them started on therapy based on whatever they'd be classified as. Yep. You want to go ahead for therapy? Let's start talking about some of these meds. So ho- hopefully this is going to be
1: some review. Yes, this should be. We've been talking about a lot of this stuff, um, even the updates and the guidelines we have referenced before, but now that it's all official... Um, it's, it's good to, to have it reflected in the guidelines. So we'll start with the um, normal initial treatment that is kind of across the board uh, for symptom management, and that's loop diuretics. They're used to de- decrease the fluid volume, make it easier for the heart to pump. Um, they're typically used as needed um, in most cases, uh, but could be um, scheduled just depending on the severity of the patient. Um, they block sodium and chloride reabsorption um, in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. Um, uh, they decrease sodium, potassium, chloride, magnesium, calcium, and water. So there's going to be a lot of stuff dragged out with the fluid that's coming. Um, so you have to be aware of that. You want to be cautious not to over patients. patients. Um, most of the loop diuretics, the oral ones, um, do contain a sulfa moiety. So you want to be cautious in a patient who has a true anaphylactic sulfa allergy. Um, and they can also uh, decrease blood pressure to a degree. So you want to be aware of that. Um, they are uh, Lasix, which is the most common that we're familiar with, furosemide, uh, bumex, bumetanide, dimedex, torsemide, uh, and then there's one more that um, we've referenced before, but is not um, widely known, and that's ethacrynic acid. That's the one that does not have a sulfamoyde. Um, and uh, I guess I think it's frequently more used in the hospital setting as opposed to the outpatient. Right.
0: So uh, I've actually only, I've only seen this one time, and I think Go. a lot of that, even hospitals wouldn't pay for it unless you, again you had a true sulfa allergy. Yeah. I've personally only seen this one time, and it was a patient who literally had anaphylaxis to ferrosamide because of the sulfa moiety. So it, this wasn't like a person that has a background allergy, you know, something like that. Um, that's going to be more. Specific to Bactrim itself. Um, whereas this was a true, she's allergic to sulfur. And, uh, and ethocrinic acid was the one we had to go with at that point. But I've only seen it one time. So it's probably something you'll never even run into. But it's one of those that it's important to know because that one time you need it, to, <laughs> it's good to have. Right. Something to have in your toolbox. Um, max dose, just to kind of throw this out there, but ferrosamide is usually a max dose of uh, 600 milligrams per day. Um, bumetonide is 10 milligrams per day, torsamide 200, uh, and then ethicarnic acid is 400 um, per day. So just to kind of throw those. But uh, if you, we want to like a conversion, if you're thinking about oral therapies, ferrosamide 40 equals 1 milligram of bumetonide equals 20 milligrams of torsamide equals 50 milligrams of ethicarnic acid. And then all of these are going to be kind of a one to one ratio from an IV to PO, except for ferrosamide, that's usually considered a one to two ratio. And that comes up a lot. Yeah.
1: For Uh, exacerbations and things like that. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Um, and then the other diuretic that you will see utilized in heart failure is, is a specific thiazide diuretic, although technically speaking, they say you can use other thiazides, but this is the one that you really only see used in this particular case, and it's metolazone. Um, and this is used for patients who um, are basically kind of maxed out or plateaued on their uh, loop diuretic to give a, a synergistic diuretic effect um, when you add this to it. So metolazone is a, is a thiazide diuretic but mechanistically it it works in the distal convoluted tubule like most thiazides do, but it also has um, activity that proximal convoluted tubule. So I guess the thought is that it can um, absorb or block the reabsorption of certain electrolytes and the proximal convoluted tubule, which pushes more electrolytes into the loop of Henle and allows the loop diuretic to work a little bit better. Um, the key to this though, is that if you, because uh, metolazone is an oral agent and a lot of times, especially in the hospital setting where, you know, this would be done um, the patient is on an IV loop diuretic you would give the metolazone 30 minutes prior to actually giving the IV loop diuretic. Otherwise the loop's going to get there way before the metolazone does because of first pass metabolism, taking it orally and it's going to take a, it's not really going to have time to do its thing. So give the metolazone first, wait about 30 minutes, then make sure you give the loop. Um, But yeah, this is something you can really over like diurese someone. So you got to be really careful with
1: that. And, uh, in the outpatient setting, you'll hear doctors will usually tell patient it's like their booster or something. Yeah, they're, they're, they'll call I've, first. My their water pill, and they might
0: call this their booster. So, I've even seen patients that take it like two days out of the seven. Yeah, uh, and just to kind of have a couple
1: of days a week, give yeah. you a little bit of a boost. Yeah, I feel like I see that a lot more than uh, I don't know that I ever saw them taking it like with every. Yeah, dose you or you will like probably overdiary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just a couple other notes that um, they do have different mechanism, or they do have different links of action. So, bumetanide and furosemide can be once or twice a day. Torsemide has a longer half life, so it would just be once a day, as well as Botolazone, It would only be given once a day. Uh, so, yeah, that kind of that's kind of a mainstay as far as symptom management. The mainstays uh, as far as first line with um, good evidence for um, mortality, heart failure, hospitalization reduction is going to be the ACEs and ARBs, uh, but more importantly, the ARNEs, if we're thinking about the guidelines. Um, so we have a number of them, a whole bunch of ACEs. Most commonly, we see lisinopril, enalopril, on occasion, um, maybe Ramapril or quinapril uh, There's a number of others that are uh, less common. Uh, ARBs, we have um, Candesartan, losartan, and valsartan. Uh, and then we also have um, the ARNIs, which are um, the angiotensin receptor and neprilysin inhibitors. Uh, we only have one. Uh, this is the newest class that we're all probably familiar with at this point. I feel like it's been four or five, maybe even six years. Oh, it came, I
0: can't say it came out. I think um, like right as I graduated, so two thousand fifteen. Yeah, Way seven back. years.
1: Gosh, Way I remember back. when this was new kid on the block, man. AJ, that's when you know you've been I'm out for so a young. AJ, don't you dare. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so uh, just to touch on what it is So it's, it's got an angiotensin receptor blocker in there Like um, an ARB plus a neprilysin inhibitor Neprolycin is an enzyme that uh, is responsible for breaking down several uh, vasodilatory peptides like um, natriuretic peptide, bradykinin, etc. cetera. Um, so by blocking neprolycin, we're going to promote um, uh, vasodilation by uh, promoting those vasodilatory peptides. So that's kind of how it acts synergistically. Um, it's a unique type of molecule as well. Um, uh, the drugs are sacubitril and valsartan specifically, branded as intresto. Um, it does have some contraindications, as you can imagine. It would be a duplication, really, to use it with an ACE or an ARB, um, so they uh, cannot be used together. And a history of angioedema is technically a contraindication um, to Entresto, even though um, the ARB is what's in there, which is a little lower risk.
0: Um, and is the really the big right. the, the angioedema risk, right? Because it blocks the that's normally responsible for breaking down bradykinin, which just like with the ACE wouldn't allow that to build
1: up, so. right? even though we don't really think about that with an R, Whoops. In combination. Yeah. Yes. So uh, not only is it contraindicated with that history, uh, be aware of that uh, as as a possible side effect uh, used as monotherapy, uh, or used uh, by itself, I should say. Uh, Also, uh, renal impairment, use caution, hyperkalemia, hypotension, and then it can have uh, a cough, a dry cough, for the similar reasons with a bradykinin, kind of like an ACE. Uh, In a patient who uh, has... um, been on an ACE or an ARB, I believe, as well. No, just ACE now. Just an ACE, mm-hmm. okay. There must be a 36-hour washout period um, from stopping the ACE and starting in Tresto. So if you're on an ARB, you can start the next mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, and I think based on the label, uh, the, the uh, they want you to have been on one. Previously, but that's frequently not done, right? Yeah. yeah I so mean, I, I looking at like the guidelines, like, they don't say that. I think it's just the way it was studied in Paradigm.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's one of those things that by the time they get to the stage, they're probably going to been on an yeah. anyway. But yeah, the 36-hour yeah, I mean, going is pretty in, important. In the
1: future, I mean, even now, I mean, it's it's used pretty ubiquitously yeah. now. But in the future, there probably will be a lot of people who maybe have never newly diagnosed who did not try an ASARP who who are are going to be started on it. But um, uh, it's important to note that uh, because of how it acts and how um, the neprilysin inhibitor acts, the BNP will not be accurate. So frequently they might measure an NT pro BNP instead to get a more accurate reading.
0: But like like Cole mentioned the the paradigm HF trial that's the kind of the first big landmark trial we had with Entresto, and uh, it was compared head to head in an with an Um uh, and it was looked at uh, that first study was done in patients that had reduced ejection fraction heart failure. And the primary outcome they were looking for was basically the cardiovascular mortality or the heart failure hospitalization, so the composite of that. And uh, it was statistically um, significant reduction in those events uh, with ENTRESTA with a number needed to treat of 21. Um, they also showed uh, cardiovascular mortality with a number needed to treat of 31, hospitalizations by itself was 30, a number needed to treat of 36. Um, and then you did get a little bit more uh, reduction in blood pressure with an ARNI, um, and then again, like Cole was saying, that that side effect risk we're all seeing, which is what we kind of expected, but um, the outcomes were definitely superior with entresto versus an
1: Yeah, it's pretty stark. And uh, I mean, the only thing keeping it from being like the true, like uh, the true first line and not just punched in there with they which it is I they still say they prefer that and this yeah. guideline I should say does make it more clear that you should always try to get them on this try to get them on this pretty much no matter what unless you just cannot use an Acer Arb if you cannot use an Arnie they kind of made them in the previous one made them kind of on the same level because of the cost uh, uh, but now it's um, they they definitely prefer it right.
0: and the cost is still obviously a factor but you know
1: it's much it's easier and there are some good Patient
0: assistance programs and whatnot, yeah. but you know, if you do have to have them on an, an ACE inhibitor or an ARB for that matter, um, the other thing that's important. This is going to be something that is talked about throughout the, all these drug classes. But we do have like typically target doses that we want to push patients to, specifically in heart failure. It's, it's not like with hypertension where we're just trying to treat to their goal blood pressure. Right. Heart failure has very specific study like studied target doses that have been shown to reduce mortality. Um, One example of this is um, the ATLAS trial which looked at patients taking lisinopril 5 versus 35 milligrams and I mean these weren't patients that necessarily needed a reduction in blood pressure. Uh, However, when you look at the end of the study there was a 12% lower risk of hospitalization or death for any reason and then hospitalizations by itself was um, a 24% reduction um, with the higher dose of lisinopril even though they didn't necessarily from a blood pressure standpoint need to go to a higher dose. Right. Um, If you can't achieve that maximally you know targeted dose then we just whatever you can get the patient up to that they can tolerate right
1: and you can make some strategic decisions uh based on what might decrease blood pressure more than others and we'll talk about that as we go um, to try to get it to where they can tolerate those gold doses right? mm-hmm. um, so if a person has a history of angioedema because this is important with these drugs um on an ace they can have an ARNI, but can they have an ARP? Um, so this is uh, a long-asked question. Uh, we do have some uh, data to guide us. So there's the CHARM trials. Uh, the CHARM alternative trial in particular included patients that could not tolerate an ACE inhibitor. Uh, it was candesartan 32 milligrams versus placebo, and 39 of the patients um, in the treatment group did have a history of angioedema, um, and they did okay. Uh, and it reduced the risk of cardiovascular death and hospitalization. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think... Uh, I don't know. I'm generally more cautious than than Mike, but um, I guess the answer would be yes, you can. So the
0: guidelines do say to go ahead and do it, even if the reason they couldn't tolerate an ACE was angioedema. Yeah.
1: And it was pretty funny. We actually had this
0: come up at our clinic not too long ago, and the patient had a history of angioedema, and uh, they were going to stop, you know, the, the ACE and then not doing ARB and the person had F ref and there um, we started to kind of all talk about it as a group and um, the person who was the, you know, seeing the patient, one of the provider that, that was dealing with it was saying, oh, I'm just not really comfortable with this. Um, you know, and, and One of our new internal medicine docs, uh, he he said, "I'm I'm comfortable with it. I'll prescribe it." And (laughs) he said, "He goes, I've done this so many times in my residency and given Mm -hmm. an R because I've never had any issues with it. It's good." good. So yeah, and person did fine. Yeah. So um, it it is one of those things, like Cole said, it can be a little bit like it's only
1: it's like any it's like when you see an anaphylactic allergy, it's like you just get nervous about it. Yeah, and it's I feel like it's
0: something that's like before was. You know, really frowned upon, and like they yeah. kind of were taught, oh, the ace cough, or right. you, you just learn those side effects as, like as if they're the same mm-hmm. from an ace and an arb standpoint, but it's not true. No, yeah,
1: yeah. We, we learned them to be
0: effectively the same drugs, but they do, yeah, work they're t- different targets. You're missing yeah. that pretty kind of breakdown with the ARB, yeah, yep. you're still getting that, or you see, you're still getting the breakdown with the ARB, yeah, yeah. All right, so that's the first important class of medications. Um, the next one is going to be beta blockers. So unlike with uh, hypertension, where you hear us hating on beta blockers and saying they're fifth or sixth line, in heart failure, especially half-ref, they are definitely like first line. Tied for first line. Yes. Um, and th- But that being said, there are only three that they actually... Uh, recommending the guidelines because of the outcome data that's available. So we have bisoprolol, uh, which was seen to reduce mortality in the SEBIS-2 trial. We have metoprolol succinate, not tartrate, but succinate in the MERIT-HF trial, and carvetolol was seen in the Copernicus trial. Um, And the doses for those, the target doses that have been actually shown to reduce mortality, um, 10 milligrams of bisoprolol, 200 milligrams of metoprolol succinate, and, and then 25 milligrams of carvedilol twice a day. Um, and eight, you can go up to 50 milligrams twice a day if a patient weighs more than 85 kilograms. Yeah. Um, the one thing that the guidelines do mention, but or uh, it's not as it's not based on actual data, is Coreg CR or carvedilol extended release. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they they did mention those. Um, whereas metoprolol, they're very specific about using succinate yeah but CR uh, wasn't studied yeah it wasn't studied but they do mention it in the guidelines as like a possibility so I kind of take that as with a grain
1: of salt because it doesn't have the data but I'm sure it's fine I guess the thought is that so metoprolol succinate versus tartrate is long acting versus short and then maybe carvedilol. So are these we have the well we have the short acting that has the data. Oh yeah. yeah. And so maybe like making a longer acting will make a difference. Maybe that's the I thought I don't know that's plus, maybe that's their pl- Well,
0: plus metoprolol tartrate was compared to yeah. carvedilol and shown to be inferior. So yes. That's yeah. It's debatable. Anyways, um, let's just say though you're like, hey, I want to go ahead and and do carvedilol CR because the person will only take something once a day and I just want to get them on carvedilol. So what are you going to do? You would pull out your app that's from today's sponsor and oh, our main sponsor pearls. Um, so, so if you have not checked out pearls.com, P Y R L S.com slash core consult, RX, definitely check their website out, sign up for a free account and you can then pull up their app and then look at the carvedilol IR to CR conversion that's available. Um, and so for example, 6.25 milligrams twice a day or that uh, total, which would be three, 3.125 milligrams twice a day is equal to 10 milligrams once a day of the CR. Um, 12.5 milligrams a day of the immediate release is equal to 20 milligrams daily with the CR. And if you're wondering like, why is the, why do we need more of a higher dose with the once a day con, um, controlled release? Um, that's because it's going to go through first pass metabolism at a much slower rate. So 2d6 is going to be chomping it up and, uh, it's going to take more, uh, of a starting dose to get the same bioavailability as the immediate release. So that way you don't have to memorize it. You can choose your pearls app. So if you haven't checked them out, definitely, um, definitely give them a look and, uh, you can get a free, uh, free membership through them and, and see if you like it before you, uh, upgrade. But, um, I definitely think you'll, you'll enjoy the app. So check that out in the show notes and we appreciate pearls for the sponsorship.
1: Love it. Love that app. Um, so a couple more things about beta blockers. So um, an important counseling point, important thing to, to know as you're initiating is to start low and go slow. A couple of reasons for that. Um, if you think about symptoms of heart failure, we didn't go into a whole lot of it, but um, uh, dyspnea on exertion, fatigue. Um, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, if uh, taking a beta blocker, uh, dyspnea on, um, like if you're exercising, taking a beta blocker can cause some of the same types of symptoms, right? Uh, because it's going to he- keep your heart rate low and it might cause, um, some, you know, uh, exercise intolerance is what I'm looking for, that sort of thing. Um, So uh, if a patient is maybe had a recent exacerbation or their fluid overloaded, um, you really don't want to start a beta blocker yet. You want to wait till they're uh, uvolemic or um, they're, they're post exacerbation. They're not in that phase to initiate a beta blocker. Um, and, uh, increasing it too fast can cause an exacerbation of symptoms as well. So once you get it started, you want to start low, go slow, but you're still going towards the gold doses that have been studied, um, uh, regardless of, um, of what their blood pressure is or whatever. So as far as they can tolerate it, you want to get them to those gold doses. Uh, and Mike referenced that um, carvedilol had been put up against metoprolol tartrate and was superior. Um, so that was the COMET trial. Um, carvedilol 25 twice a day plus metoprolol tar- tartrate or versus metoprolol tartrate 50 milligrams twice a day. Um, carvedilol was better decrease in all-cause mortality with carvedilol by a six-month time frame. Um, and the question is, can the results be, um, you know. Extrapolated. Right, extrapolated. So as far as like, is
0: all better than metoprolol succinate? Right. Um, which we don't know. But the way I look at it is if I need to pick between those three, if, if there's nothing else guiding it, it doesn't really matter. I typically go with carbetalol, but really the way I kind of break it down is do I need further blood pressure lowering for this patient? And if I do, I'm going to use carbetalol because it's an alpha and beta blocker. So we're going to block not only cardiac output, but we're also going to block the uh, systemic vascular resistance on the alpha side. And so we should get lower blood pressure all around. Um, if i do not need lower blood pressure then i can go with bisoprolol or metoprolol which are only going to block the beta receptors so that systemic vascular resistance is going to stay the same or even potentially go up um, because it's going to offset that cardiac output decrease now one that's interesting is what if the patient has heart failure and copd and the recommended um, beta blocker in this case is actually basoprolol and the reason for that is because although metoprolol and bisoprolol are both considered cardioselective. Um, metoprolol is about four times as cardioselective as, you know, non-selective. Um, but bisoprolol is 14 times more selective. So there's going to be almost no impact on the beta receptors in the lungs. Um, and so, you know, the patient's albuterol or combivent or whatever they're using for the rescue healer, for their COPD, or their LABA is going to be able to still bind effectively and not be... Um, interacted with that beta blocker. They've yep. actually studied that uh, and compared all
1: three of them together. That's very interesting. Um, I s- thought so. Yes. <laughs> well, that's why I included it, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the uh, the last class or the previous last class that you would kind of automatically add on as an evidence-based um, treatment uh, before this updated guideline, or at least before we had some of the data from the last couple of years, uh, would be aldosterone receptor antagonists. Um, so we have spironolactone and the pleronome. They compete with, the aldost- with aldosterone at the receptor sites in the distal convoluted tubule uh, and collecting duct. Uh, they reduce sodium and water retention, cardiac remodeling, and risk of sudden death. Uh, so the trial that um, gave um, kind of showed spironolactone's uh, benefit is the RAILS trial. They included patients with an injection fraction below 35%. The patients were on standard um, evidence-based therapy with an ACE or a beta blocker, et cetera. Uh, and they did decrease all-cause mortality and hospitalization. Um, a player known, uh, can also be included in there and had um, similar results in the Emphasis HF trial. Um, the number needed to treat to prevent one cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization in one year was only 19. Um, it's a major CYP3A4 substrate. Uh, but there, there are some limitations as far as um, at the fact that it can definitely cause hyperklemia or it can uh, cause a bump in potassium. It can also cause a bump in serum creatinine. So if a patient has uh, elevated baseline potassium or serum creatinine, um, you don't want to use it. Uh, the numbers there are a potassium greater than 5, um, a serum creatinine greater than 2 in females or greater than 2.5 in males. Uh, and also if uh, the, uh, they have poor kidney function, if their creatinine clearance is... Um, uh, less than 30 mils per minute, um, another marker along with the same creatinine, then you would not want to initiate them at that point either.
0: All right. So moving right along to a class of medications that I think we're all familiar with and have been getting a lot of press lately, the SGLT2 inhibitors. And dumb. So these are a class of medications that were initially um, a anti-diabetic medication uh, for glucose um, management. Uh, They work in the proximal convoluted tubule to basically decrease um, the glucose reabsorption and flush more glucose out of the urine. And because of that, they have this uh, diuretic and um, naturesis effect that um, is associated with decreases in plasma volume, blood pressure, vascular stiffness, preload and afterload, as well as that cardiac wall stress. And so they started looking at cardiovascular outcomes in patients with diabetes that also were, were on these meds. And they noticed that they were getting a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations when they were put on these, these medications. And so the dapagliflozin and empagliflozin um, are the two that have have done further studies in patients who have heart failure and seen their effects. And these were studies that were done in patients that had um, diabetes or didn't have diabetes, um, because yeah. you can take the don't you don't have to have diabetes as a comorbidity. Right. And in, in fact, the they will lower the glucose threshold. Um, For glucose reabsorption um, before you start spilling glucose in the urine, but it's still enough glucose to so that you will not go low. And so patient without diabetes um, in, you know, taking this is not like severe risk for hypoglycemia or anything like that. It's, it's a, it's there, but it's low. Um, but topagliflozin, for example, um, was looked at in the DAPA-HF trial, and um, they showed that there was a reduction in hospitalizations uh, for heart failure as well as cardiovascular mortality. And then the empagliflozin study was the emperor-reduced um, study, and they actually have one for um, preserved now as well, the emperor Preserve study that showed a decrease in uh, hospitalizations. The, the primary composite was, also, was, was statistically different, but um, it was more so uh, being... Um, kind of led by the hospitalization risk reduction. So empagliflozin and dipagliflozin are are two that now the guidelines recommend as first line options for patients with heart failure. Um, And they're also going to be an important class when we talk about pre-heart failure because they're actually some of the go-tos for that as well. Yes. there was a—you uh, want to talk about the other? No, you got it. Um, there also uh, was another one that was being um, looked at that's called cetagliflozin, and it's a SGLT1 and 2 inhibitor, so a dual inhibitor. Uh, and this one kind of looked promising, but uh, they, and they showed a statistical reduction in the primary composite, which included hospitalizations and death. Um, but the problem, again, it was being driven by hospitalizations. Uh, the death uh, by its secondary outcome by itself was not statistically— um, reduce. So I don't know if this is going to be one that they really push hard for. Um, but it's, it was the soloist WHF trial. If you want to take a look at that. Um, and also there's a, a group called cardio nerds online that has some really good, like infographics. And, um, I think they have a, uh, a podcast as well. So, um, check them out if you want to see like kind of a breakdown of all these, some of these studies, they have some really good infographics and quick one sliders that'll tell you all the info. They're a good group. I don't know them personally,
1: but they seem cool. <laughs> I mean, you know, they've got nerd in their name, they got to be good. they got to be. Um, so, yeah, so that was kind of probably the biggest uh, update to the guidelines that reflected the uh, kind of more recent evidence. So now we have, what, four classes that we're automatically basically starting, yep. all patients that can tolerate them on, um, an ACE-Arbor-Arnie for one, beta blockers, um, aldosterone antagonists, and then SGLT 2 inhibitors. Four. Uh, but we have some others, some other, uh, another that um, has some reasonable evidence in a certain patient populations. So there's BIDIL, hydralazine isosorbide dinitrate. Um, uh, hydralazine is a direct arterial vasodilator. It decreases afterload. Um, hydralazine also decreases the development of nitrate tachyphylaxis, uh, which is kind of like a. Um, uh, tolerance that patients get to taking nitrates over time. Um, and so that's why it's combined with isosorbide dinitrate. Um, they increase the availability of nitric oxide, which causes venous phasodilation and a decrease in preload. Um, they can't be used in patients with coronary artery disease, and they have some side effects associated with them, headache, reflex tachycardia, palpitations, fluid retention um, in some cases. Um, and they are contraindicated with uh, PDE5 inhibitors like all nitrates are. Um, Isosorbide mononitrate is also available and you'll see that uh, used maybe separately along with hydralazine in many cases um, For cost purposes, but it is not included in the heart failure guidelines
0: Now the interesting thing is this was actually not shown to be um, an effective option at reducing mortality risk in the VHEF trial that was done. Um, and there was a follow up trial, though, that was um, called AHEF, and it included African American patients that had um, heart failure with an elect- ejection fraction less than 35%. And these patients were on ACEs, ARBs, beta blockers, diuretics. Um, and then when they added on Bidil, uh, it reduced mortality, all cause mortality, with a number needed. The treat of 25, and then hospitalizations, um, number need to treat of 13. Um, it was stopped early because the benefit was seen so early. But um, it, we tend to think of this as being a potential add-on for um, our African-American patients. Um, although if the patient couldn't be on a, an ACE or ARB, um, then this sometimes will be extrapolated. That data will be extrapolated, and they'll just use this as another at least potential option. But we just don't have the same outcome data.
1: Right. But it could also be added on. Yeah, yeah it can be. It could be also uh, we have a couple other options as well uh, with not as uh, fantastic of data. There's Ibabradine branded as Corlanor. Um It causes hyperpolarization activated cyclic nucleotide gated channel blocker. Or it is one of those an HCN blocker um, It has some specific uh, Parameters uh, that could uh, prevent you from using it. Uh, it's contraindicated with a, a low heart rate of less than 70 um, the target heart rate uh, when you're taking it, resting is 50 to 60 beats per minute, I believe. Um, and it does have some adverse effects related to that. Bradycardia, um, increase in blood pressure, possible AFib, that sort of thing. It was looked at in the SHIFT trial, uh, patients with hef who were on maximally tolerated guideline-directed therapy. Um, primary outcome was a, a composite of heart failure hospitalization um, or death. Um, and um, uh, it significantly decreased the hospitalizations uh, but if you extrapolated uh, to the all cause mortality it did not significantly decrease that no it was it was decreasing hospitalizations but not death yeah and that what i said Maybe I misunderstood you. If I didn't, decrease hospitalizations, but not mortality benefit like we have with the other initial four and and, um, sometimes five option. Um, But with this, it did not have mortality data. So um, you won't really see this used too often, maybe in a a severe refractory patient, uh, but it's indicated in patients with an uh, ejection fraction less than 35, heart rate greater than 70, and they should be on maximally tolerated beta blockers or have a contraindication to beta blocker use as well. Um, and
0: then the, kind of the last, uh, drug that is fairly new is verisigilat, guanylate cyclic stimulator. Uh, this is similar mechanism to like a that we use for, um, a rather, um, that we use in, uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension. But, uh, this drug again, had, you know, it was a new novel mechanism for heart failure. And unfortunately, um, the, the outcomes, started to look promising but it was it was statistically significant that for the primary outcome but it was being driven by hospitalizations not the cardiovascular death so uh, we did not prolong life but we did uh, reduce hospitalizations so the way to kind of think about the you know, use of Cortland or and, um, or Aberdeen or Verisigawatt is basically thinking along the lines of if you have them on optimal first line therapy and they're still having hospitalizations due to heart failure, then maybe we can add these on to keep them out of the hospital and increase quality of life. But they need to be optimized on first line options first, ideally. Uh,
1: There's one more option that you'll see pop up, um, Pro- probably mostly in patients who've been on it for a long time as opposed to newly initiated patients, but, um, the Jackson old drug that we're familiar with, it might fall into that same category, but still would probably be like one of the last things that you would use. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, ultimately it, uh, in the ditch trial did not show survival benefit either. Uh, only, uh, some reductions in heart failure hospitalizations. So not used as much yeah. anymore. All right. So let's kind of recap everything. And
0: um, if we're talking about the, again, the stages of heart failure, so at risk for heart failure. So remember, these are patients that are not symptomatic. They don't have structural disease, um, but they have, you know, maybe hypertension and diabetes, cardiovascular disease, what in general, whatever. Um, we're thinking about basically just taking care of the patient's underlying diseases that could potentially push them further into having heart failure. So if, you know, we want to get optimal blood pressure control, um, we want to uh, give optimal management of their CVD, whether it's with a statin or whatever else they may need. Um, And if they have diabetes um, and cardiovascular disease, or even if they're just at high risk for cardiovascular disease, you could consider an SGLT2 inhibitor as well. Um, And that might be able to, you know, kind of prolong that uh, that, uh, heart health and not allow them to kind of push to, um, you know, further down these, these stages. Uh, and then the rest of it is kind of like either, you know, whether or not you need to be screening for, um, nitronic peptides biomarkers, um, or looking for things like that. Um, and you also considering genetic, uh, screening and counseling as well, if, if that's available to the patient. Yep. Um, so stage A is more, so just helping the underlying conditions yep. stage B or pre heart failure. Um, if the patient, um, has a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 40, but they don't have the structural abnormalities that are indicative of heart failure, um, and or any other biomarkers or whatever they, they recommend an ACE. Um, and if the patient has had a, a recent MI and their left ejection fraction is lower, um, then they say an ARB, uh, if they, if they're ACE intolerant, but they want them on one of those two. Um, they also say to be on a beta blocker, um, And then, again, you can consider that uh, genetic counseling and testing and things like that. Um, But, again, pre-heart failure means that they have one of those things that we mentioned, whether it's structured or optimized, but they're not having symptoms of heart failure.
1: Right. Um, And when thinking about optimizing blood pressure for those patients, um, uh, the guideline, uh, I believe this was an update as well, um, kind of similar to some other guidelines we've seen in the last couple years as well, Um, even though when you're getting patients on these goal guideline based therapies, you're not um, it's not because of a target blood pressure, like when we're treating blood pressure. Um, But in a patient who has stage a, and we're trying to optimize their blood pressure, um, there is kind of a a goal that they recommend uh, with a high level of evidence, less than 130 over 80. So um, that's based on um, uh, randomized control trial data, but they do give that recommendation, which fits along with um, some other um, uh, guidelines that we have as well.
0: Yep. All right, so now if we have he- actual symptomatic heart failure, so so stage C, um, and then we're going we're gonna to look at specifically HEF-REF, so the reduced ejection fraction and their stage C, so they actually have full-on heart failure with symptoms and all that. Um, we want to have, just like Cole said, an ACE, ARB, or ARNI, and then we want to do a beta blocker. We want to do a mineral um, or a aldosterone receptor antagonist, uh, so a spironolactone or a plarinone. We want to have an SGLT2 inhibitor, and we want to have as needed, at least um, as needed diuretics, if not or in a loop diuretics specifically, uh, if not scheduled. So all of those agents, so all five of those classes need to be utilized before moving on. Um, obviously, we may not be able to start all five at once, but those are all considered to be like first line options now. Now, if, at that point, um, if they are still symptomatic and they're on all those meds, their ejection fraction is still less than 40. Um, in African-American patients, you can consider bidil. Bidil. Um, and then you could also look at some of the, like, um, coronary like mechanical type issues or, or rehab issues um that you could uh, send them to a center for um we won't go into that stuff uh and then also the uh, additional therapies such as the uh, ivabradines and the verisigawatts if they're still having hospitalizations um that's when we would need to potentially consider those um if it's refractory from that you know we need to look at either doing some kind of a uh implantable device possibly or a transplant rather um and and even palliative care if they wouldn't be a a a candidate for a transplant Uh, but that's like you know worst case that they're you know you're you're sending them at this point you know to a specialty heart failure clinic or rehab facility that can hopefully help prolong their life as much as possible
1: right right and um Yeah,
0: I was just going to say, I mean, we can uh, touch on like the additional
1: therapies. Um, They give some guidance on when to to pick what. Yeah, I was just going to say that they um, they give a little guidance to say that it's probably best to try to um, continue to titrate and optimize these doses every one to two weeks if possible. And then that would bring you to some of the other uh, uh, last line options that we talked about of Aberdeen, Verisigwatt, Dijoxin. Uh, And then they also touch on lifestyle recommendations. So um, they recommend avoiding excessive sodium intake. Um, That's reasonable. Um, Not the highest level of evidence, but um, they said that that is reasonable. Um, If possible, with a high level of evidence, um, participate in exercise to improve functional status, exercise performance, and quality of life. Um, Also, um, cardiac rehab uh, can also uh, be beneficial for these patients as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So...
0: Since we're running out of time, I will just mention um, the the treatments that are recommended uh, for patients that have half mref or forty one to forty nine percent ejection fraction. Um, they still recommend diuretics as needed. So the loops, uh, and then the first line agent with the best quality evidence is actually an SGLT two inhibitor mm-hmm. for these patients, which is kind of interesting. Um, then we have the ACE ARB or ARNI based on some other data. The ARNI with uh, like the, the some of the Paragons and um, in some of the other newer data, um, then they have spironolactone or a plarinone as another option, and then an evidence-based beta blocker that we typically use for HFrEF. But but the SGLT two inhibitor would be the most important one to have on board. Uh, in t- It's not like they're not all equal like they are with HEF-REF. So SGL-2 inhibitor actually has the best data in this group.
1: I believe that cardiologist that came on basically said if he has a symptomatic patient with um, hef ref, they're in that range that he was starting them on an SGL-2 inhibitor. And and it's a lot easier to get them approved now as well. Especially with this guideline update. Yeah, You should be able to justify that for sure. If they have hef Imp, imp. Imp, imp, ref.
0: F-imp. If they have improved ejection fraction, we're just continuing the original treatment that they were using with hefref, ref so that we don't let them slide backwards. Um, it's going to be important to give It's a whole point of them even making this a separate
1: classification. Right. Right.
0: And then I, do you want to just touch on hef real quick? Or? Um,
1: yeah, we can glance on it in the last couple of minutes if you like. Yeah, um, go for it. Only to say that um, there is some more evidence than we used to have, um, I I would say, uh, beneficial evidence with using some treatments and preserved ejection fraction. So um, trials um, using comparable and efficacious agents for HFREF um, have not really shown the promise uh, in HFREF that they uh, have in the past. Um, Most of the recommended therapies are directed at symptoms, especially comorbidities. So they frequently are talking about optimizing uh, comorbidities and risk factors that might worsen it. Um, blood pressure control um, uh, with existing hypertension guidelines is generally the most in, important thing. Um, but similar to the HEF-MREF, um, if they're symptomatic and their ejection fraction is greater than 50%, they give a similar um, level of recommendation for the SGLT2 inhibitors. So diuretics as needed is fine, just like it has been. Um, but they, they give a similar level of recommendation for SGLT2 inhibitors, and they don't for the other ones. They're there. Um, uh, but it is a lower level of uh, recommendation, which is another significant update.
0: But what's interesting too is so if you are looking at the their little breakdown, they have an ARNI listed uh, as a potential option. And that was based on like the Paragon HF trial, uh, noting that uh, the patients who will, the the lower the ejection fraction is, um, towards you know moving towards that middle ground or even reduced, those are the ones that are going to have the most benefit with Entresto. And then they also mentioned aldosterone antagonists, um, specifically spironolactone is the one that was studied in TopCat. Um, and uh, that study uh, looked promising. Um, however, they it did not meet the statistical significance um, for, for reducing mortality. Um, what there was a post hoc analysis though, that basically showed um efficacy in american patients but not in the russian uh, georgian um, jo- or patients from georgia i guess Georgianian. how do you say that um
1: uh, well down in the south it's
0: georgian they, well okay but patients from the country <laughs> georgia, the country georgia um uh they in fact they did a sample of those patients um, and looked and uh, basically found undetectable levels of spironolactone so it's like kind of um, interesting to see if they were even in what adherence take, is like yeah, yeah yeah and so they do still mention that but we don't have the uh, um, the data to back up the mortality but it is something that can reduce hospitalizations now one thing I think was interesting too is they don't actually mention ACEs they mention ARBs because How weird, huh? of the CHARM preserve trial so if you wanted to really be evidence based you could do Candace Arden. Yep. Um, And I, and that's the one that actually has some data in preserve but it's still hospitalizations it's not really mortality yeah and then, um,
1: I don't think I mentioned the name of the trial with the SGLT2 inhibitors, but the one to check out, which is more recent, is the Emperor Preserve trial. Yeah, um, There was a 21% reduction in the primary composite of ho- heart failure hospitalization and cardiovascular death, driven mostly by heart failure hospitalization. So, not mortality data, but um, still better than uh, a lot of the stuff we have with mm-hmm. Yeah, Georgia, um, uh, they, they're Georgians. Georgians. Do you, do you know what you are for South Carolina?
0: South Carolinian. South Carolinian. That's proud
1: of it, <laughs> uh, are we? <laughs> it sure is hot here. <laughs> it is hot here, but, especially uh, these lights. My goodness. Yeah. Um, AJ, what did we miss? Got to stop drinking a gallon of water a day. It's definitely big.
0: You know, I there's stop uh, drinking or start.
1: Stop. There's okay. this whole there's this whole subculture on YouTube of uh, water drinkers. That's a subculture. Check it out. They just videotape themselves like kind of chugging water. Uh, Man. Yeah, and it's led by like this one guy who, who drinks a whole lot of water. And they just, they just, uh, you know, they, they've got this big glass and it's labeled like cold drinking water. And it, he just downs a thing of water and he's like, stay hydrated. And they go off, and there's like all these videos of people doing that. I got to tap into that. Tell I wonder if he's at heart failure.
0: Well, well we do one day. you
1: don't want to overhydrate with heart failure.
0: You sure don't. I I also, can you imagine like that's your business plan to make a successful YouTube channel? (laughs) Meanwhile, we're sitting here trying our best. (laughs) They're just drinking water. And they're just drinking water. Who knew? Old
1: drinking water. Yeah.
0: They should have really, I don't know, maybe we're just not that good. So they down it,
1: you know, they're not sipping on the water. But still, you know, it's like, I'm also concerned, how many of these videos have you watched? A few. (laughs) <laughs> okay,
0: right on. Uh, I mean, I I am. You know, Obi Wan Kenobi's out now, right? Like, so I feel oh, like that's got to
1: be better than I watching it, that. I watched it last night. Okay, the episode was sure. only thirty nine minutes, which was disappointing. Just, but good just episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't give any spoilers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm pretty much chronically dehydrated. Oh, so, all yeah. right, that's yeah. good. Well, I you I, get the tiniest water bottle of all time. <laughs> yeah, people who are Look. watching can get saved. Um. It's a fun-sized water bottle. I'm terrible at drinking water. I'm pretty good about it at work, but then I go home and drink. I go home at like 530 and do not drink water until bed, and I realize I'm dehydrated, and I chug water before bed. It's too late. And then I wake up in the middle of the night having to go to the bathroom. Every night I do the same. You know what the definition of insanity is? That. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys just
0: uh, keep calling your thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) He's, He's going through some stuff over here. He's having a tough time. But uh, yeah, anyways, hope that was helpful. We uh, had a lot of content interview. to
1: get through so I didn't get to mess around. So right. I had to wait. That
0: to was the it. yeah, that was good. We actually stayed pretty focused that we time. We were for on. Those of you guys who were good. We were on task. Tonight. On so on such task. So that's good. We had to save it off for the end. So mm-hmm. you guys uh, there you go. We we can do it when we put our minds to it. Um, but for those of you again, make sure you check out the uh, the show notes cuz in the link you can follow that to freece.com. Do use the password heart, and then do the 10-question quiz. Get your credit. Don't forget, also check out our sponsor, Pearls. Um, Download the app, pearls.com slash RX. Sign up for free. Check it out and see what you think. Um, And then if you have any questions from Cole or myself, emails will be in the show notes as well as like any of the – the social media platforms you can reach us on um, and you know, check out our Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash core consult R X for tons and tons and tons of PowerPoint slides and lectures and all kinds of fun stuff there. So thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a great night.